Bob would just move. So can I pray on your behalf and then we'll get on with the word this morning. Lord, I just pray for the, all the events there today on the green. I pray, Lord, that there will be fruit. There'll be people saved at every single event as they go through the day. I pray, Lord, that there will be almost a magnetism of your spirit about this that draws men and women to yourself. People maybe casually passing by, people who purposefully come from quite uh, another, con- another town or city, and maybe from another country, who are just visiting and tourists. I pray, Lord, you'll grab all sorts of people by your spirit over the today. We really pray this will be fruitful, and it also will create something of a momentum of your spirit here in Winchester uh, that will draw men and women to yourself, and it will be something of a hub for what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, particularly for Tim Deakin and David Williams, two evangelical bishops who work closely together. Thank you for them. Thank you for Justin Welby with his clear faith and personal uh, testimony. Lord, may those three, as it were, working together be quite an explosive mix today here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 It's good to acknowledge these and go if you can. I mean, I was a bit casual about it all and thought, oh, I suppose it's just nice churches together thing and in the end I've realized it's quite a big one nationally okay let's briefly sorry not briefly because you know what me I won't be brief but let's quickly that's a better word let's quickly get to the bible uh, we're going to talk in a moment we are going to talk about Job now I'm this is the third of our talks on Job Jesus answers to Job why and I, I did the first one uh, I think it was two weeks ago on why is life not fair And that meant we looked long and hard at the multiple tragedies that came upon Job suddenly and without warning. And uh, so I can't and won't be going into detail on that. So if you're a visitor today, you need to read or glance at the first uh, chapter and a bit of Job. And you'll see that very quickly, a man who had a very stable, very happy life with uh, many friends, a lot of wealth, many uh, flocks and herds, Uh, and uh, servants and children, all very uh, good, healthy relationship, it would seem, with the family, everything going well, and then one after another thing goes wrong, and it is a steep decline into poverty and despair, as his children are killed, many, most, there's two uh, tragedies that are human, evil, sort of enemies sweep in and steal his goods and kill off his servants. Two that are just acts of God, you might argue, just a storm, a strange storm uh, uh, comes in from the desert. And it's all very bemusing. We see, because we the reader see something Job doesn't know, that it has a link with a spiritual battle in the heavenlies. And that Satan is uh, using uh, all his powers of destruction. They are satanic things that are going on, but under the permissive will of God. And, uh, and he's using those to try and break Job and break, really, his faith in God and uh, say, look, he only, worship, worship, he only worships you and follows you because you've blessed him. And he's got, it's, you know, he's feathered his nest. It's, it's, it's driven by that. It's greed. And you take all that away. Let me take all that away. We'll soon see what he's made of. I doubt if he'll show any interest in you type hint that's what satan's mocking challenge to god is and that's the background to what we see by chapter 2 and verse 8 we find job a broken man sitting outside the city because that's where the ashes were thrown with the rubbish that's pretty well i think what's implied he's sitting outside the city he's an outcast and he's very ill now he's got horrible skin disease and he's scratching himself with a bit of broken pottery which he just picks up amongst the rubbish heap it is a tragic 
collapse. Job now has little left but his wife and a few close friends. Well, that's some comfort, isn't it? No, it's not. (laughs) Today we're going to look at why does no one understand me? Because he doesn't find much help from his wife or his friends. No one seems to understand the depth of his pain and what he's going through, the confusion and the frustration he feels about God. No one quite understands. We'll see, touch that in a moment. He is convinced somehow that God is the answer and that his grief and pain will only find any solace in God. And yet it looks as though God's doing it all to him and causing it all. And he's in a real dilemma. No one understands what he's going through. And so we're going to look at his wife, Job's wife, we're going to look at Job's friends, and then finally we're going to look at Jesus. Because what this series is, is about Jesus answers the questions that Job asks. And this is why does no one understand me? And we're going to find out someone who does understand and knows the worst about us and still loves us and is for us. And there's a lot relevant to us as we get to that. So let's get into it. Let's look at Job's wife. And uh, the passage I want to read, uh, have you got the PowerPoints, guys? Oh, you have. I just can't see it here. Don't worry. Uh, The passage I want to read, it will go up on the screen. Job 2 and verses 9 to 10. So let's just read it. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this... Job did not sin in what he said. This is a pretty painful little experience for Job. I think it's probably the hardest thing of all when people close to you, good friends or close relatives, people you love and respect, don't understand you and seem to add to the confusion or pain or battles that you are going through. Now, Job experiences exactly that from his wife. Job's wife's words add another dimension to his suffering. They make it worse. Don't try and think it's anything other than another bit of salt rubbed in his wound. In her bitterness and grief, and in her probably personal despair and anger, she challenges him to do the one thing he's determined not to do. Curse God and die. That's what she says, curse God and die. The one thing he doesn't want to do, she says, why don't you do it? What are you doing? And there's a real irony here. She said, are you still maintaining your integrity? And the word integrity, which is the same word in English uh, as is used by God, is the same word in Hebrew, surprisingly. In other words, the irony is she uses the same word that God uses when God is proud of Job when God says look my servant still maintains his integrity so up in heaven God's saying even though Satan you've thrown everything you've got at him he still maintains his integrity and his wife says what are you doing still maintaining your integrity you wally by implication so the very thing that God wants him to do she comes right at she implies it's stupid you're unrealistic you're fanatical with this religious stuff. You're a fanatic, go, fanatic, going on about God and still trusting God. What's, what's God done for you? Look at it. Curse God. What are you doing? You're stupid. The very thing that he's holding on to, the very thing that God's saying, come on, 
Prove, me, prove Satan wrong. That very thing is the thing that she is pressurising him to do. And it's an urgent, powerful pressure. The whole language carries that. It's like what it says, curse God. It's like, what are you doing? God's against you. You know, you'd be better off dead anyway. Why don't you tempt God to destroy you? Because there's probably an implication there. If you curse God, God's going to judge you and destroy you. You'd be better off dead anyway. Why don't you say, come on, you've done everything else. You might as well kill me. Why don't you say that to God and really, uh, you know, shake your fist at him? Now, to be honest, that is not an uncommon attitude in our culture about evil and suffering, is it? What are you doing? It's God's fault. How can you even think that God's good or reasonable? Why don't you just curse God? If he's there, kill me then. If he's there at all, that's the tone of it. The Hebrew is passionate. It's quite in, her, in Job's face. It, as I say, it's not unfamiliar to us when people are tussling, and perhaps, you know, even our friends tussling with something awful happening in their lives. And this business of someone close to you is also painful. There may be people in this room this morning who are knowing what God wants them to do, are trying to do something that they know is for God, and that is the very thing that is aggravating their relatives. I see it multiple times as a pastor. Someone wants to be baptised, and that's the thing that, that, that the fact, what are you doing? What's that all about? You've gone, gone fanatical. You've gone mad. Don't mind you going to church occasionally. What's this baptism? A young couple trying to keep their integrity. They're getting married. Already mum and dad are a bit, you know, not particularly sympathetic because it's all Christians and stuff. And then they say, we won't be sleeping together until we're married. And all hell breaks loose. Instead of the parents being proud of them and saying, well done, they say, what? Not sleeping together? How do you know how you get on? For goodness sake, you've gone mad. That is often what young couples meet today who have unbelieving family. They do not get commended for that. They get told they're foolish and mad and, it, and they won't know whether they'll be any good as a couple together, etc., etc. It is not uncommon to find those nearest and dearest to you suddenly get right under your radar and get to you at a deep uh, level at perhaps your lowest point. That is exactly what happens to poor Job. Let's take a few minutes to explore it. I think there is another agenda here. The very thing that Job's wife says to him is very much what Satan wants to say to him. Satan wants to tempt him. Satan is very frustrated that Job hasn't done this. And this has got a satanic element to it. Curse God and die. She's operating on her own volition. She's not been taken over by a demon. I'm not suggesting that. But in her fleshly anguish and anger and despair, she is actually playing the devil's game against Job. That's what she's doing. And it does sadly happen. Actually, I'd say Satan is never, hear this, he is never motivated by compassion or kindness or mercy. He does not know what it is. Everything he does is destructive and evil and antagonistic to God and his people. He had a freedom to kill every member of Job's family, except Job, he couldn't kill him. And he spares the wife. The children have all been dead, are all killed. He spares her. He knew her vulnerability. He thought, well, I can use her. She will be my final weapon against Job. She's a weak link. 
Obviously, she's motivated by her own anguish and despair, and we feel some sympathy about that. But actually, out of it, she's saying exactly the wrong thing. And I tell you, this is not unknown. Jesus experienced it. Can we put up Matthew 16? It wasn't a wife, it was a very close, dear friend. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. Whoa. And this is only a few, maybe hours or days, after Peter had got it all right. He'd said, you're the Messiah. You can read it for yourself. It's the same chapter in our our Bibles. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. Jesus, in effect, said, well done, Peter. You've got revelation from God and you believe that. Peter was a close friend, someone who he thought, Jesus thought, really got who he was and what he was coming to do. And just as Jesus is beginning to tussle with the deep, deep, anguish of what he's going to do he's going to die for the world's sins the thing that would make him sweat drops of blood in the garden of gethsemane just as he's working it out in his own head as a man under god the father peter says ah rubbish that's not going to happen to you it's all going to be fine implication you're that's that's you're being a bit negative jesus <laughs> whatever he's saying and actually Matt, mark tells us that he did this in front of the other disciples. He rebuked Jesus. He contradicted Jesus. The very core battle in Jesus' spirit, who's already battling, and he will battle, Lord, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's the core of his battle, Jesus' battle. And Peter comes wading in on the side of undermining Jesus' willpower. Because Jesus, you know, and that's why Jesus deals with it so robustly. It is a painful fact And I really mean this soberly, looking over my life and looking over my behaviour through my life, that Christians, Christians, hear that, can say the unkindest and most inappropriate things to one another at the most vulnerable time. We've talked about those who haven't believed, can pressurise us, not understand us. This, like Peter, is much nearer to home. Christians can do it. I think people have done it to me. And I sadly say, I believe I've done it to other people when I look back with hindsight. Moving out of my flesh, moving out of my own insecurity, my own pain, my own confusion or selfishness or greed or fear or whatever you want to call it, I say exactly the wrong thing at the wrong time to another perhaps close member of my family or or friend or, or relative of somebody who's right in the middle of battle and out of my problem I allow them to hear a basin full of exactly what they don't need to hear at that point now why why am I saying that because that is really what happens and I'm saying it because we've all got to handle this two ways we've got to handle how think how we handle it ourselves we'll talk about it in a minute but we've got to talk about ourselves let's try and make sure that we are not guilty of that not used in that way, that we do stop and think, 
What are my concerns? That's what Jesus says to Peter. You're not concerned about God's concerns. You're concerned of just your own concerns, human concerns. There was a whole story behind that. You know, he's expecting a Messiah who's going to rule. They're all going to be, you know, James and John think they're going to be the ministers, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Minister of War. That's their thinking. And Jesus says, you're obsessed with your concerns, not God's concerns. And you're speaking Satan's words to me. You're playing Satan's game. Now, actually, we can do that. In our foolishness, when we're moving out of sin, when we're moving out of insecurity, when we're moving out of our flesh, we can make life difficult. Husbands and wives, be very careful how you speak to each other. Brothers and sisters, be careful as brothers and sisters together in Christ how we speak to each other. When people are having a tough time, often we are stoking the fire for the enemy. He is nasty, he has schemes, and when he gets a chance and he hears us and he thinks, aha, that, if I poke that at the right time, that's going to really help my cause. And that seems to be what goes on here. So we need to be self-aware. I think we need to hear Jesus' words, do to others as you would want them to do to you. What would you want at this point in your life, you know, another person to do to you? Just try and take time to think about that. And the third thing, go on being filled with the Spirit. Because that's the answer. We don't want to move out of the lust of the flesh. We don't want to move out of our human pride, fear, or whatever it is. We want to move out of the Holy Spirit in all we do. And so when you're looking to handle difficult things with other people, ask for his help. Holy Spirit, give me the words. I want to be a minister of peace and righteousness and hope. I don't want to be speaking Satan's temptations. I don't want to be a bringer of lies. I want to be a bringer of truth with love in the right way go on being filled with the spirit come out of the spirit minister out the spirit how do we cope though when this happens to us how do we cope when that happens to us because i've been in that position as well well i think it's tricky (laughs) but both job and jesus are quite straight job doesn't mess around with his wife and jesus doesn't mess around with peter They are both quite robust in how they deal with these wrong but passionate words. Job tells his wife that she is talking like a foolish woman. Now that could sound like a very sort of ordinary sort of insult, but actually it's a little more to it. In the Hebrew mind and in the biblical thinking, fool is someone who says there's no God. The fool says in his heart there's no God. So this is quite a deep thing. He said, you're talking like someone who doesn't believe in God. You're talking like someone who's lost their faith. I don't need to hear that. He's not necessarily saying, she, you see, you are talking like a foolish woman. And sometimes you've got to be straight. You're not bringing me the word of God. This is a, you're just adding to the lies. I want to know the truth. And you say, oh, do you talk like, well, if we don't. Political correctness is rubbish, okay? We've got to be honest and speak the truth in love. Forget all the nonsense you learn in your culture and all the rest of it. We sometimes got to speak the truth, but we've got to do it in love, with respect. I'm not saying disrespect people. Well, I couldn't say that. Yes, you can. You're defending something in your spirit. Now, don't be despising of people and rude to them, but you might say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear stuff that a fool would say. And that's how he answers it. Jesus is even more direct. I would caution you about getting into Jesus' territory. You're not Jesus and nor am I. So you say, you're Jezebel, bah, you've got a demon. Well, you might be overstepping the mark. That's not your duty to do that. But you can say, 
you don't understand the things of God, you don't, you're speaking to stuff that's undermining what God's saying to me. And that's what Jesus is saying. We're not Jesus, so be careful that we don't call people satanic. But Jesus knew where it was coming from, and he was able to be right in doing that. But he certainly needs to, re- to reprove people who are attacking the core of our faith and where we're standing. We need to hopefully bring it with love as best we can, but sometimes you can't mess about too much when you feel your back's against the wall. And you just have to be clear and faithful to what you know God said. Okay, well then along come his three friends. So we're now going on to the friends. Let's look at the friends. Let's read this, please, Job's friends. We're going to read Job 2, verse 11 to 13. It'll come up on the screen again. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, hmm, sounds like something in a cave, doesn't it? Hanging down, stalactite. But anyway, that's what he is, he's a Namathite. When, When they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him, Job, and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him but because they saw how great his suffering was. These three guys in these verses do very well indeed. Have no doubt this is the good bit. They do very well. Look, Job was a very wealthy, powerful, influential man. We can pick that up from the first verses. He would have had lots of friends. He'd have had lots and lots of friends. We always have lots of friends if we've got lots of power and influence and money and things like that. But actually, these are the three that stick by him when he loses everything. Well done, Bildad, Elevi, Zahadan, anyway, you know who you are. But, you know, well done. These three stick by him. They are faithful friends, actually. They made an effort to go and see him. Their motive is, I believe, totally good. They go to sympathise with him and to comfort him. They really do feel his pain, not in some trivial phrase. They get on the ground with him. They tear their robes. Obviously, that's slightly a sign of mourning in the Middle East. We tend not to do that. But they they then sit where he sits, which is very powerful. They sit with him for seven days. They get right alongside. They get down in the pain with him, and they just are with him and for him. That is brilliant. That is real comfort and strength for anybody to to copy. That's a great example to copy. And for seven days, they don't say anything. And that's quite good too. Well done, guys. They just sit there weeping with him. And to be honest, that's the very first lesson and the best lesson almost. Don't rush to try and fix stuff with people. For goodness sake, when people are going through something difficult, the first thing they need to know is that you're with them and that you're, you feel for them and that you are not going to just leave them and ignore them. You're going to stay with them, which is they do all of that. And that if these people are suffering or digesting bad news or confusing news, sometimes they don't need answers and insights and, and, and trite phrases. They just need your sympathy. They just need your presence with them. And that you do understand this is a tough time. And these guys do all of that until they start talking. And then it seems to begin to go wrong. 
And by the time we get to Job chapter 16, he's saying to these guys this. Let's put that one up. I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if, I, if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you and comfort you from my lips. Would, comfort from my lips would bring you relief. There's a nice little moment of insight into what he's had to put up with from them by the time we get to chapter 16. And it goes on. And he's basically saying, you go on and on, telling me this, telling me that, long speeches, shaking your head at me. Well, I could do all that. You just haven't a clue. You don't understand what I'm going through. And I don't think you understand what's going on, because that also comes out. So what do we learn from this? Chapter 2, verse 11, tells us the friends genuinely wanted to comfort Job. I don't think that's phony. They proved it by their actions. They genuinely wanted to comfort him. But ultimately, they spectacularly fail in the thing they wanted to do. And all of us could learn from that. Let's briefly analyse it. They allowed themselves, first of all, first point, they allowed themselves to be provoked by Job's wild emotional outburst in chapter 3. We're not going to be turning to any of this, so you just got to believe me. If you know Job, you'll probably know I'm right, but you can read it for yourself. But it's all quiet for seven days, and then Job speaks first. Okay, get that point? So they're all quiet, and Job comes out with quite an outpouring of blah. He's, he's got a lot of whys in there. Why is this why? He has got a lot of whys. You can read them for yourself. It is an honest outburst. It's heart-wrenching. But it's quite full of his anguish about what's gone on. It's powerful. You can read it in Job 3. But instead of absorbing it and continuing just to care for him, the friends begin to answer all the problems he throws up. They begin to explain why it's happened and what God is doing and advise Job how to fix it and put it right. And that's what they then begin to do over the following chapters. Now they start quite courteously. You can read it for yourself in Job 4. It's all quite polite. They don't seem to want to condemn him. They've been sympathised. They've been weeping with him. However, the more he doesn't take on board their explanations, the more pointed and personal they get. And in the end, as he doesn't play ball, he doesn't go with their arguments, they get irritated with him, they begin to become cold and critical. And as you follow it through, these guys who are sitting crying with him now are just cold and critical and quite negative about Job himself and actually, in the end, are implying that he must have done something outrageously wrong, which there's no evidence for, or this wouldn't have happened to him. So the whole thing escalates until they're basically saying, well, you, goodness knows, it's only people who do really bad things that experience this, so we don't know what you've been up to. Type, comment. So that's where it ends up. And he has these other outbursts at them, miserable comforters. So what else do they do? So I don't know if these are in order, but I hope it all comes through. <laughs> they make a fundamental mistake of judging Job's inner state by looking at his outer condition. I love Matthew Henry. He wrote his commentary nearly 400 years ago. 
And so it's Old English. But he says this, our commentary on them. It is a great piece of confidence to pass a judgment on men's spiritual state upon the view of their outward condition. Now, what he's saying in modern English is it shows a pride and an arrogance when we take it upon ourselves to judge someone's inner state by just looking at their outer state. It's very easy to do, but it's the essence of a false judgmental attitude. When you think, well, you got in a, you're in this mess. What a mess you're in. Something must have gone wrong. Something's gone wrong inside you. No good telling me you're all right. It's not God's, you know, God's being kind, kind to you and you've done nothing to bring this on yourself. You must have done. <laughs> you know, look at the state you're in. I mean, God was blessing you a few years ago, a few months ago. Something's gone wrong somewhere. Well, it has, but it's not with Job. It's up there, Satan. So, but, but they don't know that. They're saying, well, it must be your fault. God's good. It must be your problem. And, and so on and so forth. There's a dose of pride. We can be very guilty of this judgmentalism, sadly, if we're a bit like Job's comforters in this, that we ourselves are not going through what the other person's going through. So we're quite comfortable and quite successful or okay. And then from our position of comfort and strength, it's quite easy to make fairly harsh and unbalanced judgments about people who are going through it. It's just something to watch. We can all do it. We can do it about other churches. We can do it about other church leaders. If you're a leader like myself, you think, well, I must have got that wrong. Uh, Oh, yes, that scheme didn't work. Hang on. You don't know all that's going on. You need to be careful. The next point, we're all linked together, really. They're very confident that they know what God is doing. Be careful. They are very confident that they know what God's ways are and that they can speak for God. Their arguments are quite logical quite dogmatic and a little bit theological all the way through. Basically, they link suffering to sin. Well, it is linked in the broad thing. We talked about that last time. But they link it particularly, obviously, person to person. So they see suffering as a judgment for sin. God blesses and rewards good behaviour. Trouble and suffering come as a result of bad behaviour and sin. It's the baseline of what they're saying. These things then come from God to punish us and correct us. And the way to fix it is you repent, admit your fault, admit your problem, say you were wrong, please forgive me, Lord, and everything will be all right. Now, that is my simplistic summary of about 20 chapters. But that is the sort of argument that comes in again and again. And it is a common argument that in the end, it cannot be God doing this. In the end, it it must be a problem down here. I can understand the logic of it. It's very, very easy to see how these arguments become fixed and formulaic. But actually, it isn't as simple as that. Human life and the spiritual world are more complex. Human beings are more complex. God is more complex. And the devil's involved. And it just isn't as simple as their fix-all theology tells them. It's very simple from their point of view. Every problem, and lots of Christians can be like this. We can all do it at times. Every problem has a cause. Find out what the cause is. If it's not fixed, that's because you haven't found out the right cause or you haven't responded to those like us who've helpfully told you what the cause is. And that is the logic of everything they say. But actually, it wasn't as neat and tidy as that. In a way... They thought they could speak for God without really seeking God. 
And that's what God gets angry about with them at the end. They didn't know God really. So you didn't know me. You spoke for me without knowing what I'm like and what I'm doing. In a way, you misrepresented me. And we need to get to God. We need to get revelation from God. We need to move in the spirit when we're bringing comfort. We need to bring God-centered, God-honoring, God-dependent solutions to situations. Not ones that are just formulaic and we think we've got it all buttoned up. Of course, what happens is that we get so wrapped up in our own dogmatism that we then are defending our ideas more than caring for the person. And that can be driven by pride and it can be driven by fear. Fear that maybe we've got it wrong. Fear that if this can happen to Job, it could happen to me unless Job is worse than me and has done something wrong. And none of those things are right. We have to move in the spirit. We have to move out of our own relationship with God, not driven by a fear that if we've got our ABC wrong, we're in trouble, and not driven by a pride that we have got ABC wrong and he hasn't. It's very telling and very challenging. Funnily enough, God can cope with the sort of thing that Job says in chapter 3. When Job has his outburst and pours out, God is not phased like these guys are phased. And actually, you can see that in other parts of the Bible. God deals with the most passionate outbursts from Moses, Elijah. They both ask God to kill them. Both ask God to take their lives, and he doesn't. Their prayers, he doesn't answer. And of course, there's Job here. David, read some of the Psalms. We can be very, very open and honest with God, and he is more understanding than many of our friends are. You need to remember that. It's a comforting thing to remember. Underneath it all, Job knew he needed to have dealings with God. That comes out again and again. These human comforters tried, but they, they didn't help at all. They were miserable comforters. Underneath, for all his anguish and all his confusion, he thinks, I've got to have an answer from God. Somehow, God's the answer. You're not the answer. You're not giving me the answer with your bright ideas and your arguments. I need God. He was right. And that's the answer we have. That's our last point. We're going to go to Jesus now. We have a much stronger position to understand things than Job did. And that is wonderful. Where do we go for real comfort? Who is going to really understand us? Who is really going to help us? Who is going to really get close and be faithful friend to us. Well, it's one who sticks closer than a brother. It's Jesus. There's one who is a father who understands you better than anybody. That's our heavenly father. Let's talk about it briefly. So let's go to Jesus and let's read a passage in Hebrews. These passages will come up quite quickly because I know we have to be careful with time. But this is about Jesus and what he happened when he became a man. Jesus came to earth. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too, this is about Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Without unpacking that in detail, I want to say to you, Jesus has changed the game completely, even from the days of Job. Jesus has come and have been a man with all the humanity that he had. He was truly man and truly God. And he died for us and rose again. And he broke some of the devil's power that maybe you could argue wasn't 
so broken in the times of Job. There is a new day we're in, and Jesus has done a new thing. He has come and been a man and been on this earth and understood the suffering and pain and awkwardness of this this world. He's understood what it is to be betrayed by people, like Peter, to be misunderstood by your best friends. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. We need to get one big thing. There is someone in heaven... There is a man at the right hand of the Father in heaven who understands what it's like to live like we like. We live. Amen? He's got it. He knows what it means to be alone. Even feel God's forsaken you. He knows what it's like to have your friends let you down. To have other people, religious, respected people, think you're an idiot and be rude to you. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood by all sorts of different people and neglect. Even his own family didn't get it. His own natural brothers were pretty awkward and antagonistic once or twice in the Gospels. And he knows what it is like. And knowing that, he can empathise with us to a, a degree beyond understanding. He understands our frailty. He understands that we are just dust. But here's another wonderful, wonderful truth. John 15, 15. Jesus said to his disciples, if you could pop that one up, please. Jesus said to his disciples this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus doesn't just sympathize up there in heaven. It's great he understands it all. He's actually our best friend. Jesus said, I now call you, this is to his followers, people who believe in him, people who put faith in him, I call you friends. And everything I've learned from my father, I'm sharing with you. As my friends, I make known the father to you. Now, these are profound things. I genuinely would like to spend half an hour talking about that verse. That's not an exaggeration. I can't. I just want you to get the truth that Jesus is a better friend than any human friend. And Jesus understands you completely and yet loves you and has also made you his friend, if I can put it that way, and is sharing with you all that he has, which brings us to the third of the three scriptures I wanted to put up. Because now we move on to the Holy Spirit for a moment. John 14, let's read the next one, John 14. And I will ask the Father, says Jesus, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, to be with you forever. Notice that, spoken to his disciples. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Here we're touching the Trinity, all right? Big, big stuff. But Jesus says, I who am with you, God become a man, will be in you. God become spirit in you. And so all that you know of me now, here, standing next to you, you will know in you, through the one I will send, the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. 
Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. On that day, that's the day when the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Hallelujah. Someone's got it, David. Praise God. You have a revolutionary position. Jesus understands you. Jesus has made you a friend. But he lives in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And he shares what he has with you. This is profound, but it's also very, very exciting. Christ in you. The word advocate is paraclete. Many of you will know that, which means one who comes alongside to help and encourage. Jesus said you're going to have one who will always be with you, never leave you, to help you and encourage you. And he is the Holy Spirit to actualize the work of Jesus as our friend. One of the most difficult things about going through trouble is quite commonly you feel like Job, I am utterly alone, no one understands me, and no one really cares. Even the people who try to care get it wrong. And they do try, but they get it wrong. And that is a very lonely place to be. But Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, you are never alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. You say, well, I don't feel it. You don't go on your feelings. You go on your faith. There are times in life when you have to be robust with yourself. Faith does not look to feelings. It looks to the word of God. That is an old familiar truth that you need to hold on to tightly you know it's a little story isn't it three little children walking along a wall the first one's called god's truth or something the second one is faith and the third one is feelings i've probably given it but it's the right principle and they won't fall off the wall if the middle one keeps looking at the first one the first one is god's word god's facts if he turns around and looks at his feelings he's going to fall off the wall right? You don't tie your faith to your feelings. Your feelings follow your faith. That is the order. God's truth, my faith, my feelings. It's not that feelings have got no place. They don't lead the procession. They follow. And that is how the Christian life works. And there are times when you need to understand that. And Jesus said, you are never alone. We will never forsake you. He says, you can call out to me at any time. I am interceding for you. I know what's happening to you. I am with you. I am with you to the end of the world. Do you believe it? Yes, you do. Don't give yourself a hard time. But you need to hang on to it too. You need to be active in it. And you need to work on it. And encourage yourself, even when you're feeling well and good you need to meditate on these fix the roof when it's not raining you need to meditate on these things so you really do believe God's with me I understand what the Holy Spirit does I understand he's with me all the time and cares for me when I was preparing this this is where I'm ending when I was preparing this I remembered several times it came back to me a hymn from my childhood and it was in Golden Bell's hymnal. I've got, still got a copy of it and found it. I think you'll find it in other hymn books as well. 
It was written in 1855, and sometimes you suddenly realise these old saints got hold of something. And sometimes we need to rediscover what they got, and we think, oh, quaint little Victorian hymn. No, it's a, it's a deep Christian understanding. Here you are. I wonder how many of you recognise it. Put the verse in. Got three verses. Here's the first verse. Put up the next one. Please. Next, it starts, What a friend... No, not that one. The first one. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You're going to have the next verse now. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Last verse. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Saviour, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. It's wise words. It's wise words. Come on, let's end with a song. We probably can't sing that one because only about five of us know it. But it's good. He won't know. He won't know. He's too young. (laughs) I don't. I don't. That's all right. No, no, we don't need to sing that. We'll sing something else. Same Jesus. But it's a good, a good sentiment, isn't it? It's a good sentiment. Come on, let's stand together. We're going to worship him. We're not going to try and learn a new song that's 150 years old. You just sing what you've got. But let's worship him as we finish together.